You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. So, Hale, for those that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about today. My name is Dr. Sohail Masood. I am the founder and CEO of Kaba Fusion. It's the largest independently owned, privately held home infusion company in USA. We provide patients at home with intravenous drugs and nursing. And today, I think I want to really talk about my journey as an immigrant from Pakistan coming at the age of 19 in 1981. So it tells you pretty much how old I am. And where I am today and the challenges and rewards of being in this country and how an immigrant with nothing on himself can make a life and not just my life in the process. I have given back a lot and made a lot of changes for people around me, my family, my extended family, my friends, public in general. So I'm I'm very blessed that the things that were given to me, I was able to share with a bigger audience. What are the challenges of getting into a new culture? What's the most difficult part of that as far as how other people treat you? So in 81, I came to Chicago for education, and that was really the reason for me coming here. My brother, older brother, was already in America. So I came to Chicago, stayed with him and his roommate. So it was three of us sharing one bedroom apartment, and I was sleeping outside on the floor for the first year or so. But going to school was really- Were you really outside? You were out in a tent or something? No, no, in the living room on the floor. (laughs) Not outside the house. (laughs) You didn't get a bedroom at least. No, I didn't get a bedroom. I gotcha. So came in 81 to Chicago and spent a year and a half getting my undergraduate in biology. And uh, definitely I knew I was different than a lot more students in my school. But I really never felt any discrimination. As a matter of fact, a few of the teachers were really very fond of me and we made a very good relationship. And they were very proud of my work. I was getting always straight A's and everything good in the school. So teachers were happy at least. The students were very encouraging and I had a few American friends. And the only thing which kind of confusing for me at that time was American slang and American culture. We grew up in Pakistan watching some Hollywood movies, but not really that much in in real detail about yeah. the life in America. So there were things that I was totally baffled. I had no clue. Like I was listening to this song one time and I had no clue what the singer was saying because they were using the words that I had no knowledge of. So eventually I learned those things and I was very curious. I always wanted to blend in a way. And I wanted to understand the culture. And I found American folks really very friendly and and very open and pretty warm as human beings. So that hasn't changed in the last 40 plus years living in this country. I still feel the same. We travel a lot all over the world. But coming back to America and meeting the Americans is always a positive feeling and a happy feeling. I went to Northeastern Illinois University for a year and a half. And then my brother, he moved to Los Angeles. So I followed him and I came to University of Southern California, USC. And then I continued my undergraduate program. 
And then around 1983-84, when I was pretty much finishing my bachelor's in biology, I had no clue where I wanted to go, and I was not sure. I knew it was something to do with medicine, but my, my counselor at that time at USC, she told me that being a foreign student, I really had no chance of getting into medical school. Was that a discrimination of sorts? I really have no clue why she said it. But she must have a reason because I later found out there were other foreign students. But, but I think that in the end, I'm a person of spiritual convictions. And I believe that God had really meant for me to go this journey. Didn't get into medical school. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was applying to dental school. And I told him when I was growing up, my mom was always against me going into dental school because she said, I don't want you to be putting your hands in other people's mouth. So I knew that dental school is not my option. So the guy that I was talking to, the friend, he said, why don't you go to USC School of Pharmacy? And a couple of guys are my friends and maybe they can show you around and something you may like it. So I went to the School of Pharmacy that one day and they said they will meet me in the cafeteria. I went to the cafeteria and I saw these four guys sitting there smoking. And I say, okay, this is it. I want to get into pharmacy school. <laughs> it looked very relaxed. So I said, perfect. <laughs> I had people in pharmacy that sometimes the conversation of medical doctor came up. And some of them would say, well, I'm not going to be a doctor because I don't like the sight of blood. And inside of my head, I was saying, ah, that's baloney. You're not smart enough. None of us are smart enough to do it. But then when I think of dentistry, you could not pay me enough to go in there and crack teeth and have all that blood and saliva yeah. and all that mixed together. You could not pay me enough. So even though that wasn't my reason, I can see people don't want certain things. It's just a hard thing for some people. Yeah. So I took it too hard, what my mom said, and ended up at the pharmacy school. I applied. I had very good GPA. I got into pharmacy school from 1984 to 1988. I was there. I finished my doctor of pharmacy. So last year of pharmacy school, as a matter of fact, I did one of my internships in a home infusion pharmacy. And that was really, if you remember, the 1980s beginning and middle of 1980s was really when HIV AIDS was mm. just starting. Mm -hmm. It was becoming kind of worrisome for people because we didn't understand what this disease does, how does it spread. We knew something to do with homosexuality, something to do with needles, something to yeah. do with blood, but didn't know much about it. And I did my internship in Pasadena, California at this home infusion pharmacy. And I remember going to patient homes with the nurse and the pharmacist and doing a meeting with these young men Mostly the pharmacy used to go into the Hispanic neighborhoods, and these are young Hispanic male who are kind of segregated from their families. They're in one room, the family's in the other, and as a matter of fact, they have a curtain between the young man and the family. And we'll go in, and we understood a little bit that this is not something we can catch by touching people. Mm -hmm. So we will go in, we'll pat on the back of the young man and all that. And I really enjoyed that connection between us and the patient that I did not see when we are in the retail pharmacy where patient comes in and they're saying, where is my medicine? I've been waiting for half an hour. And that's all they're worried about. 
in the hospitals, the pharmacy profession is very different because there the patient doesn't even know who the pharmacist is because the medicine comes, the nurses gave, and pretty much the end of the story. So I, when I saw it, I said, this is what I want to do. So I told the guy I am, uh, where I was interning, and I said, once I graduate, I want to apply at your place as a pharmacist. And he said, you know what, I'm not going to hire anybody who didn't have a residency under the belt. So at that time, I had no clue what pharmacy residency meant, where to go, how to do it. At the very last minute, then I applied and I got accepted at Brookdale Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> I said, I'm going to go. I was a single guy. I was living with my brother. I put my stuff in my car, my Toyota Tercel, no air conditioning, no power windows, anything. My brother and I, we drove to Manhattan. Then we went to Brooklyn and we found a nice basement for single studio basement and I rented it out and I did one year of residency in pharmacy there. And then eventually I finished my residency and I came back to Los Angeles because I really wanted to stay in LA. And those AIDS patients, were you seeing the loss happening? Did you know any of them and were you seeing their unfortunate passing? Some, like, you know, how it is when you're young and you're more adventurous and when you get older. So I made friends with a few of them and instead we, because we were taking care of them. So for some time from there and also when I started my own company, HIV AIDS was still there. I was getting involved with the patients and knowing them and knew when they were passing and very sad situation. So when you talk about discrimination, I saw that discrimination firsthand with the HIV AIDS patients from the family, from the caregivers, and from the healthcare professionals, everybody, there was really this, we don't like these people kind of thing. I felt very sad. But the reason I'm into home infusion is because I wanted to take care of those people who had no other hope. So, Hale, if you grew up with the same family structure, all right, so put yourself back with your brother and your parents and so on. Take your family's drive out of it. Do you think you had an advantage coming from Pakistan as an immigrant? So definitely, when I finished the high school in Pakistan, equivalent to high school here, we call it FSC, was I think our education was much more harder than what the students were learning in America. So when I first came to Chicago, I remember my teachers, they were so proud of me. And one guy, biology teacher, he said, oh, there is... One person who can go to medical school is Mr. Masood. So that's how impressed he was. But for us, those were very simple things. And because we had to memorize everything, the GI system and the CNS system and this and that in the body and the chemical formulas and all that, there was a lot of memorization. American students were more into multiple choices and all that, which is still very difficult. But writing the essay on how the digestive system works I could do it with my eyes closed, but the other students had a harder time. So, But that was the only advantage. Everything else was a disadvantage because although now I can speak better English, I can understand you much better, those days I had a very hard time because if somebody had an accent, a little different than we, you and I talking slowly, I had a very hard time in the class. I will miss a lot of things because I could not understand what the teacher was saying. So I had to read more in the books and understand from that. Definitely not every student in the school wanted me to be his friend. So there was a limited number of students that I could become friends with. 
And definitely being a Muslim and not drinking alcohol and all that, there were few places that we can be friends and hang out. So that was another disadvantage, you know. So so socially, um, it was a little odd. I remember first time going with friends to a restaurant and they were sitting around the bar and say, oh, you want a drink? No, you want to smoke? No, I don't smoke. Said, what is wrong with you? You don't drink. You don't smoke. So those were the challenges that I had, uh, social Challenges were the hardest, uh, dealing with other human beings. And we were very poor. I told you we were four, what one time four of us in one single room. And that's how we lived when I was going to pharmacy school. So we were always short of money. And I didn't have car in the beginning. So I'll be taking buses going everywhere in Los Angeles. Got to learn a lot about the town, but it was a challenge nonetheless. So how... I don't drink alcohol so much in the last year or two because I always get headaches and I'm not sure when they're going to come on. It's like half the time I'm okay and half the time I get headaches. So I just don't drink it. And people ask me sometime and I'm thinking of telling them now that I'm Muslim. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are true allergies to alcohol and I'm severely allergic to red wine. Even if I'm sitting in the plane, somebody drinking next to me, I will start sneezing and coughing. Is that right? Yes. So no kidding. that's a true allergy, yes. No kidding. You can say you have allergies, yeah. All right, I guess I'll go with that. <laughs> or Muslim, either way. <laughs> so, Hale, the problem is, though, is I used to always, whenever customers would come in the pharmacy and they'd say, I can't take that green one, I can take the red one. And whenever they left, I'd say, ah, oh, that's a bunch of horse manure. I'd always mock them. And now here I am with my own headache stuff. And I think it's just coming back to haunt me. Well, yeah, that's true. So, so Hale, when did you realize that you were making more money than you would have if you were employed as a pharmacist, let's say in a chain pharmacy or something? At what point did it click where you said, oh, I'm doing better than I could in the field. What year was that? And where were you that you had that feeling like I'm a step further than I would have if I was an employee somewhere? So somehow, definitely one thing, money was never a motivator for me. It was a necessity, but I never really thought about money. And believe it or not, when I was 42 years old, I retired with millions of dollars in the bank when I sold my first company to shareholders. But that was really not something that excited me that much. I would really love doing what I was doing. But as, a, as an entrepreneur, I started my first company in 1992 called Crescent Health, became the largest in California. And by 2004, when I brought in the investors, I was doing about 84 million in revenues and I was the only sole owner of the company. Why did you bring investors in? Well, two reasons. One was I just didn't know how to manage my time. So I was always on the road and I ended up in 2003 going to UC Irvine thinking I was having a heart attack. Oh, But it was not that. It was actually, I used to drink and believe it or not, 25 cups, those four ounce cups of coffee a day. 25 a day. Exactly. So that one day that I was on the road and I didn't eat anything and I kept drinking coffee, I ended up throwing up and my EKG flipped. 
So I ended up going to the hospital. So at that time, I realized that life is short. And my father died at the age of 42. And I'm reaching that 42 years of age in 2003. And I have two children, Layla, now she's 30, and Omar, my son with Down syndrome, he's 26. So even though it was a large company and it was a lot of money coming in, but most of the company money was tied into the accounts receivable. And I'm like, if I die tomorrow, what will happen to my company? What will happen to my wife and children? So for that reason, the secondary reason was money. And I brought in investors. They bought 65% of the company. I maintained 35%. Some of their money then funded the account receivable, allowing you to pull some out then. Yes. So I took that money. And as a matter of fact, they thought that they can do a better job with another CEO. So they brought in a CEO and got me out of the company gave me a chance to start the second company, (laughs) and that was building infusion pumps and IV pumps that we give to the patients for the drugs. And I sold that company to Baxter in 2007. So that was the secondary project that I did between Crescent and Carbofusion. Now, Carbofusion is, I told you, is the largest home infusion company in America. It was valued more than a billion dollars when Novo came in. To invest in the company. We have uh, 1,500 employees and almost 800 million in revenues, maybe 900 this year. Hmm. So reaching that billion dollar target. But at the end of the day, to me, really, it was never money. It was just enjoying what I was doing. That home infusion bug that I got in 1987 continued even to this day. I don't need to work, but I cannot stay home and not do anything. I love what I do. When you sold, part of it was to get some money out. The other reason was because there was a lot of pressure on you. If you're not thinking about bringing investors in, could you have hired better? Instead of having people invest, could you have brought in certain executive suites and so on? Or do you feel like you had to sell in order to give that ownership and to kind of step away? Excellent question. So definitely I made mistakes. Like I told you, I did not really use my time efficiently. Mm -hmm. So if I was who I am today, I would have done things very differently. I really never looked at myself as a CEO, even when the company was doing 84 million in revenue. I was always an entrepreneur, always looking at new and always looking at excitement and all that. I should have been sitting behind my desk and really focused on managing the company rather than mm-hmm. going out with the salespeople and doing marketing because I really loved going and visiting the doctors and talking about IVIG, intravenous immunoglobulin, which was really something that I pioneered in California with Dr. King Engel back in 1990-92. So my goal was go out, teach the doctors, tell them what we are doing, how IVIG can benefit their patients, were otherwise wheelchair bound and they had no other way to get out of their disease state. So I just did not see myself as a CEO. But this time around, I did totally differently. From 2010, when I started the company, Kaba Fusion, I brought in my brother and two of the employees as co-founders who worked for me at Crescent and Mike Regas, the clinical guy, and Sohel Merchant, the financial guy, and my brother, Aslam Matsud. So we started the company in 2010 from just 
one idea and took it to nationwide and made it the largest, one of the most profitable and fastest growing home infusion company. And during this process, as you may have read, in 1999, I won my first Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award for Greater Los Angeles and the second one for Cabo Fusion in 2017. I also received the most distinguished alumnus award from USC School of Pharmacy three years ago and several other ones, NHIA, National Home Infusion Association. They gave me their Lifetime Achievement Award. So I'm very blessed. So the first company that you had that you sold that you brought the investors in? Crescent. What was that? Crescent Healthcare, I started back in 1992, and that was to provide home infusion, exactly what I'm doing today. It sounds like you had to have a non-compete somewhere in there, and was that the reason? Yes. It was a five-year non-compete. Five years. Yeah. So I waited five years and one day before (laughs) I start my company because the investors were not very nice to me and not very nice to my company. The ones that came in with Crescent. Exactly. So that's something that I can really teach a lot of people how to bring in the investors at your terms and do the right thing because I know a lot of pharmacists, entrepreneurs at one point or another, either for financial reasons or for other reasons, if they want to bring in investors, it's a landmine. Unless you know how to maneuver it and do it the right way, you will be shortchanged because as an entrepreneur, that was my first deal of my life for those the investors. This was something they do day in and day out. So they knew all the, the little pieces here and there in the contract, which was going yeah. to help them, but not really helping me as an entrepreneur. So I learned a lot. Well, I have to go back to your statement of saying that maybe you would have changed gears and not been on the road and been behind the desk doing this or that. I would argue that by saying, maybe you were exactly where you were supposed to be and maybe you should have sold sooner because that's in your blood. Because I always wonder that, like, you always hear that about people that are doing something they love and then they get a bunch of businesses and then they grow and then they're sitting in the ivory tower and they don't love it anymore. And it's hard to say, well, you should have stopped at this level and been the CEO when you're changing the oil in the car or something like that. But sometimes you have to leave, I guess, because you're beyond your level of love. The way I look at it, there's definitely a transition between being an entrepreneur to a CEO. And be entrepreneur is somebody who's always excited, always keep wanting to change things and keep doing it. CEO is somebody who may still have entrepreneurial urges, but actually gives it to other people to do. So the management team I have, I'm very involved with them. As a matter of fact, when like, for example, three years ago, just before COVID started in February of 2020, we bought Linkair Home Infusion from Linkair. And I remember going on the road and meeting all the employees and they were so surprised that they were saying they never knew their CEOs before and they never met any top manager and here the CEO of Cabo Fusion coming and seeing them in Wynn, Arkansas and Birmingham, Alabama, and all these towns, and and they loved it, and I loved it. So I still have that feeling. I still want to connect to my employees as an entrepreneur. I don't want to be a CEO sitting in the ivory tower. I wanted the same thing kind of during Crescent, but things really didn't work out the way they did. As a matter of fact, before I brought in the investors, before I ended up at the hospital emergency room, 
I had a very generous offer on the table by another company who wanted to acquire us. And that was strategic, like they were doing the same thing that I was doing and they wanted to buy it and pay me a ton of money. But I was really not in ready to sell. But that trip to the hospital and remembering that my dad died when he was 42 years of age really changed everything. And I had to go back and redraw things. And I did a lot of good things. And that's another thing that a lot of people don't do. I planned everything. I planned my living and I planned my death. So I have trust for my children and all kind of things that you can imagine that entrepreneur never thinks about. I have done all those planning, life insurances and everything that will benefit my children and wife. Even if I'm not here, I don't need to depend on Fusion. keep doing better for them to eventually get the rewards. The rewards are already there. What was the size of Crescent when you sold compared to the size of Kava now? So when I brought in the investors back in 2004, Crescent was doing 84 million in revenue. And Kava Fusion, we are almost reaching that revenue for one month. Whoa. So that's the difference, 12 times almost. What became of Crescent? Crescent uh, in 2017 was bought out by Walgreens. And sometimes it happens when a bigger company buys out something that they didn't have expertise in. Eventually, Crescent name disappeared, but eventually also Walgreens came out of Home Infusion. They abandoned Home Infusion. They altogether. did. Yes. So, Hale, what's the worst hour of your week? In other words, yes. what's something that you hate to do an hour every week? Whoa. Really, there is no hour that I hate. I love each and every hour. The hardest thing for me is getting up early in the morning. I'm a late riser, so I like anything and everything to do after 11 a.m. in the morning because there you go. that's how long it takes me to get up and get ready. And that's the best part of being the CEO, that I can be walking in at 11 o'clock and nobody will get upset at me. But otherwise, every hour of the day, I, I love it. I enjoy life. I'm, like I told you, very involved with a lot of different things. And my son having the Down syndrome also gives me a purpose in life. And before he was born, I tell you honestly, I really didn't know much about disabilities. But since he's born, he was born in all these years, now 27, almost 27 years of age, I'm realizing how much disabilities are there and how less we do for those disabled people. So with Omar, five years ago, we started Omar's World of Comics in Lexington, Massachusetts, where the kids with special needs are hired. And Omar and his manager, they run it. And my daughter, Layla, is also working there. They started something called Pixel Paradise, where the kids come in to play computer games because she grew up playing games. And she said, Daddy, this is a group of people who are very shy and they don't have a place to hang around because Mostly they do it online. So that's why we created Pixel Paradise. So some of these kids will come out and they will visit the store and they will play games. So Omar's World of Comics and President Biden gave a shout out to him oh, cool. a couple of weeks ago. So that was really great. Yes. I imagine you get a lot of hugs from Omar, do you? Oh, a lot. I always think that's such 
The beautiful thing about our friends with Down syndrome, and I have a niece who's got Williams syndrome, which is not Down syndrome, but it's another chromosomal challenge. But I've got some of my sons now, you know, some I get a good hug from still, but most of them it's like, get out of here, dad. But I miss getting hugs because I know I see a lot of very loving children with Down syndrome, and that's got to be a pretty cool part of it. Yeah, and the thing about them is that they have, they are very pure-hearted. So even if they're mad at you, it's not for a long time. So I'll just show you a couple of pictures. This is with Kamala Harris. Whoa, he's a handsome guy. Yeah, thank you. And he gives everybody superhero name. So she's Miss Marvel. And that's her husband right there with Omar. And that is President Biden. Whoa, look at that. Fantastic. Look at the hug. Oh, he has yeah, his hands hug. on his shoulder. You don't get to do that to the president all the time. So <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah. So, Hal, are you usually at the office when you're behind the computer and things like that, or are you at home? Every day I go to work. Even during the COVID time, we were always at work. And what time are you there from usually then? So, I reach, like I say, around 11 o'clock. I'm there, and Omar comes with comes to my office first, and then 1 o'clock, he goes to his store. Mm-hmm. And I stay at work till like 4 or 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock sometimes. But I like to do this from home because... At work, there is constant... Um, I got you. You're at home now. Yeah, yeah. So this is my home. I'm at home right now. How far is the office for you? 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And Omar's store is also 20 minutes. So it's very close. And Omar's store is in the same town, Lexington, where my corporate office is. I have two corporate offices for Cabo Fusion. So East Coast one where I sit is in Lexington, Massachusetts. But our main corporate offices in Cerritos, California, Los Angeles County. And that has a couple of hundred employees. I have about 70 some employees here. Wow. So you're in your young 60s? 61, yes. How many years will you be coming into the Kava offices? Is this going to go on for another 30 years with you or is it 10 years? If you do, when do you finally, I know you've got plans in place, but when do you think that won't be in your blood anymore in terms of going into the building? Yeah, so what, definitely like you're asking about the time I'm no, no longer working in the office is the time I need to find another hobby, right? For me, definitely when I retire, I would like to write a book and I want to talk about the first year and a half living in Chicago when I could only afford a Snickers bar for lunch to the time that I'm driving a Rolls Royce and living in a nice home. That 30-year journey or 40-year journey, I want to talk about it. I want to give the young folks hope that you don't need to be extra smart. You don't need to be blonde, six feet tall, seven feet tall. You can be me, five nine, immigrant from Pakistan and accent and everything, and you can still succeed. On honest basis, not by stealing, not by cheating, not by doing the wrong things, but doing all the right things, you can still be very successful in life. You don't need to do wrong things to be successful. And not just doing like for myself and my family, like I said, the Omar's World of Comics and all the other organizations that we support, that is really the exciting part of making money to give it back. And all the good folks, the ones that you know, Warren Buffett kind of people, they always give money back to the community because that is the right way to do it. For me, I think there is another four years, maybe five years maximum 
but I want to retire. I want to write the book or books. I read a lot of books, so definitely book reading and writing is my passion. I love history. I want to write about Egypt and talk about these other ancient civilizations and what happened and what I think about them. Those are the things I want to do eventually. If you were plopped down into America now, instead of 1980, let's say you come now and it's 2023, so it's 40 years later, do you think there would be more challenges being not necessarily an immigrant, but a young man in America? Do you think it's better now? Is it harder now? Is it not even a question that should be asked because we all just have to power through our challenges? Yeah. So good thing about being an immigrant is that although I assimilated a lot into this culture, I still have an immigrant eye and immigrant ear. So I look and hear things and remember them. So I remember when I came in 81 to Chicago and I asked one of my classmates, I said, summertime, where can I find some mangoes? And she said, are you crazy? You want to eat mangoes? Do you know where they come from? I said, where do they come from? She said, from Mexico. Nobody eats things from Mexico. 81, imagine. So things have come long ways in really the American culture right now is much more open than it was in 1981. I remember how segregated the blacks and whites were in Chicago. Huge difference in even in school, I remember the black students will just stay in their corner, the white separated. We were kind of in the middle, so nobody really cared. And we were pretty much accepted by everybody on both sides. And same about the food, same about the vision of immigrants. And I remember the first time I told somebody I came from Pakistan. She said, Palestine? I said, no, Palestine, Pakistan. And her question was, where is Pakistan? Had no clue in 81. Now you ask everybody, everybody knows that's where Osama bin Laden was hiding. So everybody knows about Pakistan. But in 81, nobody knew. I suck at geography. I don't know where anything is. I know that Italy looks like a boot over there. I know that much. But if you told me Pakistan and Bangladesh and Palestine, I'm terrible at all those countries. I don't even know where the states are in the U.S. Well, I cannot tell about all the Pakistanis, but definitely I love geography. So I always, I kind of know where everything is and I travel a lot. The thing about geography over in those parts of the world, when you take pretty much a quick train ride or hop on a quick plane ride, you're almost in a different culture often, unlike the U.S. when you're going just to different states. So believe it or not, I have not been back to Pakistan since 1984. No kidding. Wow. That was the last time. And the reason for that is that I got married to a Syrian woman. So we go to Damascus, which haven't been since the war started, but we used to go to Damascus. And anytime we went to Syria, we will go to one more adjacent country. So we went to Lebanon, we went to Egypt, we went to Jordan and Turkey and all that. So after the war started, we have not been really traveling that part of the world. Mostly we are going to Europe and just coming back. When we hear about fighting, wherever the fighting is, I'm always thinking that everything's torn down. But for example, have you seen war-torn areas? Have you seen buildings that have been 
shot down and bombs and things? Or is it like the country's so big, this is just a little part of where things are? No, I did not ever see any torn down buildings, except in the movies. And yeah, in our imagination, it's like the movies, like you're going to sit down anywhere in the Mideast and the whole place is going to be torn apart. That's not it. I stand corrected. I need to tell you that I saw the torn down buildings and actually they were in the south side of Chicago. They were burned down. <laughs> 81. <laughs> I remember going to the Museum of Science or something and I saw the buildings, they were burned down side of Chicago. How many people do you see a week in your role with the company? How many people are reporting to you and so on? So my the C-suite is about six people, six managers. And then the senior VP is another, I would say, 10. So six to six plus, yeah, so about 10, 15 employees, they still report to me. But I have a policy in my company that I give each and every employee my cell phone number. They can call me anytime. And as a matter of fact, they do to tell me from different offices if they want to talk to me. So I really, I have very open communication with my employees at each and every level of the company. I imagine, Sohail, that you do such a good job of managing your direct C-suite and the other 10 that report to you that you don't get a lot of calls up from below them. That's kind of symbolic. Do you ever get somebody calling you, actually? So sometimes the calls <laughs> they come to me, actually, are very funny because when the vaccine came out for COVID-19, there was, there was this phobia, either political or medical. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But employees were hesitant to get vaccinated. So I, I sent out an email to all my employees, and my partners were very scary, but they let me do it. And I said, every one of my employees need to be vaccinated by, let's say, August 30th. And I started getting phone calls. I started getting emails from the employees who were adamant that they have the God-given immunity because they're O positive and they cannot get COVID-19. I said, oh, we're O positive. Doesn't make any difference. So, so those are the calls came to me and I talked to them. And believe it or not, having that direct communication, all the employees voluntarily got vaccinated. Out of 1,500 so employees, we got rid of only four employees because they refused to get vaccinated. Everybody else got vaccinated. Some might just want to let you know their concerns, and then once yes. you've known them, then they go ahead. Yeah, and sometimes they call me and say, oh, I was supposed to have a day off, and my manager is not giving me the day off, and I always tell them this is not something you should be bringing to me. I'm not going to get involved. This is between you and your manager. You need to sort it out, and I will never call the manager and say, give somebody a time off because I really don't know. The manager knows better. The trouble I always had with managing is kind of having that open-door-ish policy, but then I kind of felt responsible for something, and you learn later. It's like, you can tell me. That doesn't mean I'm going to do something about yeah. it. If I can and I want to, I will, but it's not an automatic that I'm going to do something about it. So I'm very clear with my employees when they call me and if they have any concerns and comments, I mean, something that I can take care of, I do it. If I cannot, I tell them right away, this is not my responsibility. You have to deal with your manager and get things done. And most of the time, things eventually get done. And we managers are very close to each other. And if somebody said, 
oh, John Smith didn't let me do it. I know who exactly John Smith is and how he thinks. So it's not like if he did something that, oh, he did it because wrong reasons. I know why John Smith did it because I understand his thought process and I trust it. If you could have any job or position in the world, whether it's government or some other company, would you do that? If someone said, all right, right now for four years, you get to go do something, you're going to be the president of the US or you're going to be whatever, would you do it or do you enjoy your setting so much? It's like, no thanks. Well, the only other job, if somebody gives me to do it, is an archaeologist in Egypt. I would love to take that position and I will go tomorrow and I will start doing it. But I'm really happy with what I'm doing. And like part of it, I told you I'm on certain boards. Yeah. So I can see the difference we made. So for example, about when we moved to Boston in 2006, Massachusetts Down Syndrome Congress was run by only one person. And she didn't even have an office. So Mona and I, we funded the first office for five years and that department really flourished. So Massachusetts Down Syndrome Congress now have their own office, they have their own staff. So from one person, they have several employees working there. So we do these kind of things and we see the change. But otherwise, there are too many happy memories with the business that I'm in that I want to get up and go do something else. Well, now you got me going on archaeology. All right. It seems like all the archaeology is always like six feet down. Now, is that because if right now you found one of my kids' toys in the yard, that in 3,000 years, there's just going to be dust and dirt on top of it and things naturally find their way down? Is that the reason why things are buried? That's really the main reason. If you really look at it until the late 1700s, humanity had no interest in archaeology. When Napoleon Bonaparte got into Egypt in Cairo, the Sphinx was buried up to his neck in sand. The local guys didn't have time. They didn't have reason to clean it up and make it presentable. So the late 1700s, 1800s, and as the humanity's interest in biblical stories grew bigger and bigger, archaeologists started going to these places in Mesopotamia and Israel and Palestine and this and that and Egypt, really mostly for religious reasons, because the story of Abraham and Joseph and all that was in Egypt, David and Solomon in Israel, and the whole story of the, the, the Israelites going into Mesopotamia. There was a whole thing about Mesopotamia and same with Iran. So that's why if you really see the archaeology and what is going on in the world, it's mostly where you find biblical history. You don't hear about archaeology in Pakistan or India because we are very Eurocentric. Even now, we are very Eurocentric. They had no interest in archaeology in India and Pakistan because it didn't play any role in Bible. But the biblical lands, they were all and also European like Greece and Rome. But most of the archaeology got buried because nature always takes over when people don't take care of things. If you don't take care of your house, in, in not in 2,000 years, in, in 100 years, the grass will grow to be taller than you and the trees will be 
leaves will be fallen and everything else, uh, your house will be dismantled. Nature takes care of it, just like same thing happened in the Mayas, to the Mayas in, in Central and South America. All these huge pyramids, they were buried into the trees because the jungle regrew. And when it regrows, you get some of that natural soil being made and it just gradually happens. Yes, yes. And the, the earth moves into the crevices and then from there the trees start growing and they're growing at each and every level of the pyramid. So when things in the biblical lands, when they're what? Six feet down, that's just from dust nature. and wind, nature. Nature, here. yes. Nothing else. Most of historical sites were buried under because of nature, not because people brought the dust and put it on it. But that second part also happened, like what happened to Troy. So Troy was like that in Turkey. It, it got out of use and it got covered. And then people, rather than digging all the way down, they built on top of it, and then they built on top of it. But they didn't realize that there is something underneath because they saw the land, and they only needed to dig it so much to put the foundation, so they kept raising buildings on top of each other. Somebody was asking me the other day, so how the pyramids were built? I say, how was Empire State Building built? How tall is it? I mean, who built it? What happened? We don't even know what material was used in Empire State Building how deep it went down in the ground, what were the issues with that. We talk about pyramids which were built in antiquities. Human mind can only go back this far. And if there was no interest, nobody wrote down and said, for future generations, we need to write it down so when they come, they know no. how the pyramids were built. Nobody did it. No, nobody cares. After dinner, we're always around the table and We'll tell the kids, everybody do your job. You know, someone's got to take the recycle out and someone's got to sweep the kitchen floor and all that. And my kids somehow have not learned how to wipe a table down. When I was a kid, my mom would give me a soapy rag and you would wipe everything. They take like half of a paper towel and they get it damp, like a quick run underneath the water and wipe down little spots on the table. I'm like, that's not how you wipe it down. And it makes me think of the archaeologists who are down there with like brush. a paintbrush and they're getting away like one speck of dust every minute. And I think of my kids cleaning the kitchen table. Is that true that it takes that long to do it? They probably don't want to break something with a shovel, right? Yeah, but the reason they do it that way is because they have passion for it. Maybe your kids don't have a passion <laughs> to <laughs> clean the tabletop, so... You have to create some passion. Maybe tell them if you clean it up, there will be a dollar coming out of the bottom or something. But archaeology is really a field that people who go in really truly go in for passion. Because yeah. imagine in the middle of nowhere, you're pulling dirt out and getting a small piece here and a small piece there. But archaeology is just it's a passion. I really don't see money in archaeology. I don't see fame in archaeology. I just that. People do it. Imagine, you know, that guy, Champollion, when he read the hieroglyphics from Rosetta Stone. How exciting that is. Yeah. But, you know, we don't think about it because who cares what it, the hieroglyphics say in the Egyptian pyramids? Have you dabbled in it yourself? Have you been to a dig? I've been to a dig, but not to dig it myself, but to be there 
So there was a place next to, in Petra, next to the ruins, there is an old temple, 2,000-year-old, that the Brown University was excavating. So we went there and we saw how the dig was done and it was very interesting. But I have an opportunity very soon that I want to avail on it and go uh, to a place in northern Egypt where they are recovering things from the the city built by Akhenaten, that Akhenaten was the father of King Tut. When he changed the religion and he started a new religion, he built a new city. So I want to go and see that dig in that place. What feeling, what emotion does archaeology bring up for you? Just that I want to know. I just want to know what happened. How did people live? The more I'm finding out. So the, we went to this place in Turkey. It's called Gobekli Tepe, which is from almost 7,000 BC. So it's a 9,000-year-old temple, which puts the whole history and archaeology upside down because humanity, as we were told, was that human beings started farming and that farming led to religion because they were now settled down at one place because before that, they were hunter-gatherers. But farming is not really what started the religion. Gobekli Tepe actually tells you that religion started farming because people wanted to take care of the temple. They didn't want to leave the place, so they started growing food. And, and so Gobekli Tepe is really a prime example. So if you imagine 9,000 years ago, they had an organized religion where they are making temples. How old? history was even before that. So 11,000 years ago, they're building the temple. So there must be another 10,000 years. I think that people 25,000 years ago were really living like us, dressing up and wearing clothes and things. I always think of that, how we look back in history and they didn't realize where we were going. They thought they were the top of the world, crossing the seas in their boats. I mean, they felt like they were on the Titanic, all yeah. dressed up. And you can go back thousands, 50,000 years ago, and people thought they were the cool ones on Earth. Yeah. It's really yeah, something. So, well, that's what history teaches you, that humanity is very old. And, and the more we do archaeology, the more we will learn, because... Number one, even the technology is not really that sufficient. Even now, we need better technology and their sonars and things that they're using, which are much better quality than they were before. And then same with the carbon dating. I think there we need a better dating system where we can do the inorganic stuff. Carbon dating is only good for organic stuff. So we need means to know, if somebody wants to know how old Sphinx is, there's really no true way of carbon dating what it is, because it's not a living thing. So they compare with what was around or something. So there are all these questions and where the religion came from and how did people develop their sense of morality and humanity and all these kind of things that we take it for granted today in 2022, 2023. How was it back in 7,000, 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 years ago? I tell my wife, this is about 20 years ago. I told her we'd be at the beach. You'd see these old farts out there with their metal detectors and their black socks up to their knees. Yeah. I said to my wife, I said, if I ever start doing that, I said, you shoot me. It means I've lost my mind. 
Well, then about 10 years ago, for some reason, I started thinking it was cool. And so I said, you remember when I told you not to ever let me do that? I said, I kind of want to now. And she's like, no way. And I'm like, yeah. so I get it for Christmas. And so my kids and I, we go down. Our backyard is down a hill and I'm finding stuff. So they think I'm cool. So they don't look at me as an old fart with long black socks and up to my knees. I would find stuff and I would say it was from the Germans bombing us. I had like World War II going on in my backyard and my kids <laughs> fell for it. They either fell for it or they just went along with it. You know, yeah. they're like, whatever, dad, you know, you can think that if you want to. So where is home for you? We're in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, Michigan. Okay. We have one office in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, you do? Yeah. And the other one in near Detroit, Michigan. Have you had the chance to go to all yep. of them? I went to Grand Rapids, Michigan office. I've been to all of them, of course. You have. How many altogether? Now, I lost the count because we just bought Corum, some of the Corum facilities. So we got another 15, 20 of them. So I need to go to Tennessee, Ohio, and Colorado. Those I haven't been there yet. But rest of the country, I have been to each and every office. All the Arkansas, all the Alabamas, and Texas, and Florida, and California, and Michigan and Indiana and Illinois and all over the country. How many about is that? I think now we have like 30 pharmacies, 25, 30 pharmacies. Wow. When you travel, do you do that alone? The LinkCare one, I took two of my C-suite managers with me, the chief clinical officer and chief sales officer. This last one, the one main to main, I took the area vice man, the vice president, AVP with me to go to the pharmacy. You can go in and be like the undercover boss. I've never watched that show, but yeah, they'd probably figure you out, though. I don't know. But if they visit my website, they should know. You couldn't go in as a 30-year-old blonde. You may be surprised. Who knows? Because the technology is there. I just need to avail it. <laughs> so, Hale, pharmacists who might be listening to this as they're pulling up to the job or pulling into home, and they might think about this show for a few minutes as they leave the car. What words of wisdom or advice or thoughts would you give to them that they could either think of for a few minutes or do it for a few minutes or go somewhere or whatever? What advice would you give? So for me, as a pharmacist, the most important thing is that I need to understand the person coming into my store is not a number. It's not a dollar sign. It's a human being with true needs, mm -hmm. not just for himself or herself, but also people around him. So each human being as a person understand their disease. Even if they, they demand more time from us, we need to make time. And that's where I think a lot of these retail pharmacy stores are failing because mm -hmm. The pharmacist has no time. They're working like dogs. And that's why I could never see myself working in a retail pharmacy behind the counter. Just take these and directions are there. Just get the hell out of here. Don't bother me kind of thing. So we need to understand each human being has needs and we need to really meet those needs as a caregiver. We need to be patient centric. Just like when we go to a doctor who somebody who will listen to us and say, okay, I remember last time you talked about this and that. Are you okay now? And what is, how is your family? Or oh, you were saying you're having some 
issues with your daughter or son and, you know, that's the kind of caregiver I would love myself to be and all those pharmacists. Not just I need to put this in a bag and give it to this guy. And a lot of pharmacists get into that trap and their excuse is because we, are, we don't have time. They need to stand up and tell, just like the nurses do sometimes, they stand up and say, we need more time to do things. The pharmacists need to tell their owners of the businesses that we need more time to take care of these people. At Carbofusion, we are patient-centric. That's the only thing I tell my managers to worry about. Let me worry about finances. You worry about your employees and how they're treating the patients. And that's one place where home infusion succeeds, where we make a relationship with a patient. Because just like retail, a lot of patients are chronic patients. They are coming in for diabetes, hypertension in a retail. For us, they may be coming in for neuromuscular diseases or something else that they're chronically on some kind of therapy. So my goal always is tell my employees, think of those patients as your family members because that's the only way you can treat it's your mom or dad or your brother or sister. That's the most important part. You provide good services, money will come to you. Patients will be so loyal to you, they don't want to get up and even go to anybody else. So, Hale, golly, nice talking to you. That was fun. Thanks for what you do, and you really put your money where your mouth is. You've had wonderful successes in your life, and you still have people that you want to help and be involved with and set goals and move forward. And that's a really cool lesson to us all. So pleasure meeting you, Sohail, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.